So glad to see all of y'all tonight. Also, am super glad that our family in Kenya and our family in Uganda and our family in Australia are joining us. This is really, really cool. Last week, we talked through the Sabbath. And again, let me just say this. Um, there's no way that in 38 minutes, which is how long last week's study was, that you can cover the full topic of Sabbath. I highly encourage you to do a deep dive yourself. There's a lot more there. Uh, we, uh, I was actually reminded this past week of a sermon series we did a couple years ago where we unpacked the seven different elements of Sabbath that we see displayed in the Word of God. I had forgotten all about that series. Apparently, it's on our YouTube channel. I honestly don't even remember what it's called. Was that part of the Root series? All right, go look on YouTube for the Root series, and it is in there if you want to get caught up on that. Um, we did a deep dive into Sabbath, and even then, and all of the sermons that we did on that, we, we didn't really cover the whole topic. But the only thing that I want to kind of give as an intro for tonight, which kind of brings us into connection from last week, is Sabbath is the foundation of every feast that we learn about in the word of God. Something that we introduced last week is that God instituted seven feasts. And these are the feasts of the Lord, meaning these are my feasts. These are feasts that I'm giving to you to remind you of things, to commemorate things, to celebrate things. But every one of these feasts are for me. And also the thing that we as believers who have not only accepted Jesus into our lives and we're leaning into that relationship. We've also been filled with the baptism of his spirit. Each one of these feasts apply in our lives differently than they did to the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And so the really cool thing is he's not asking us to observe the feast in a ceremonial sense and become like spiritual Jews or even to replace Israel. And these are two very, very popular theological viewpoints that the church replaces Israel. And so we have to practice everything that we see in the Old Testament in a literal sense. But what we have to understand is the bride of Christ is different from the chosen nation. And Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law. And he is in the process of fulfilling all seven of these feasts. As we learned last week, he fulfilled the first four feasts at the first advent, which is his birth. And his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The last three feasts will be fulfilled at the second advent, which is after the seven years of tribulation that the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble. All right, so we're all caught up. Tonight, we're going to get into the first two feasts. And the reason that we're doing these two feasts together is because in modern times, people observe these two feasts at the exact same time. One is the Feast of Passover. The other is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They literally bump up against each other. Passover is a single day feast. Unleavened Bread is a seven day feast that starts the day after Passover. If you were to go to Israel today, or if you were to talk to an Orthodox Jew about Passover, they would describe these two feasts as being one and the same. And even in uh, as old as the New Testament, they, are, they were even observed together, almost like a single feast, even though they have somewhat of a different purpose. So tonight we're going to look at both of these together and we're going to see how Jesus fulfills both of these feasts and how this applies in our life. So turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. If you have not already joined the group, you can scan the code 
and have access to all the resources and all the things that we post throughout the next three months. Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to be looking at verse four. This is what God says. These are the feasts of the Lord. They are holy convocations, which is what we learned about last week, which these are days that are that are set aside as sacred assemblies that are not just one time or occasional. They are regular. They are actually weekly. And the you see them recurring throughout all of the, the seven feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord. They're holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So the first thing that I want to bring to your attention is that God is the one who appoints the time when the feast is to be observed. So chronologically, where we are in our calendar, we're kind of in the middle in between the two times of the year where the feasts are actually observed. Passover, as we'll learn in a few minutes, starts in the springtime. We just recently celebrated uh, uh, Pentecost Sunday, which is literally the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, which we'll get into in a couple weeks. And then you kind of go into this lull time before you get into late autumn and that, that time where you're shifting into early winter. And you, you start to see all of this begin to, to function out that direction and you, you flow into the feast toward the end of the year. So you're in this season of time where you're just kind of in a holding pattern in the summertime in 2023 when we're actually recording this. And, and what I think is really interesting is uh, Pastor Luke and I were actually talking today because he called me. He was like, hey, what you talking about in the feast? He wanted to make sure I wasn't getting weird or anything. But we were talking about the importance of that lull time. This is something that God has in, intentionally put into the flow of this redemptive calendar. You're, you're going to go through a lot of things and then you need to kind of have a resting period or a time of lift. And that's something that we observe even 2000 plus years later from the New Testament, even in North America, the summertime is kind of a, a, a lift. It's kind of a, a low time. And so what we begin to find out is that in this lift, in this season where there is a, a time of rest, this is a great time to go back and be remembrant of everything that we have learned up to this point. Excuse me. So what I want you to observe is God is very intentional when the times come. He doesn't just say, oh, just celebrate this whenever you want to. Now, it's very, very common in postmodern in Christianity and, and other various forms of religion. But God is very, very intentional. He says, I want this feast to be done on this day at this time for this reason in this period of time, because everything points to what I'm doing in my time. Does that make sense? All right. So we, we have learned that he is creating this, these feasts, not just the ones we're covering tonight, but all of them have an appointed reason and appointed time. The first of the seven feasts are the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as I mentioned earlier, these two feasts are observed back to back. And uh, they're often included, in, even in the Bible, they're often referenced as the exact same thing or they're cross-referenced. So if you're reading in the New Testament, and one example that I'm thinking of is, is in the book of Luke. Luke actually references it in a way that makes it appear 
as if something is going on outside of what would be the regular time. He's just using the common language to refer to what was the common practice at the time. So let's first off talk about Passover. Um, let's look at Leviticus chapter 23, verse five. Here's what God says about Passover. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So every bit of this is very, very intentional. So let me read that again in case you're not following along in your Bible. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight. Do you think he is very specific about when this is to be observed? And that is the time of the Lord's Passover. So let me tell you what we're not going to do first. And I'm going to encourage you to do this. I'm not going to dive into everything that is the definition of Passover. Go to the book of Exodus, do some personal study, observe and learn what the first Passover, all of the details. What I want to do is I want to show you how the feast was commemorated after that. We're not going to be looking at the first Passover. We're going to be looking at the Passover that actually sets up what we call communion and how this connects with us. So 14th day, first month at twilight. All right. Passover is a day of remembrance. Everybody say remembrance. And it commemorates the day that God rescued Israel from Egypt. At the end of the 10 plagues, Pharaoh is done. He lets God's people go. What's very, very interesting, Jesus does 10 major miracles just before his final Passover. Just, is it coincidence? I don't know. It might just be one of those random Bible nerd things, or it actually may mean a whole lot. I think we ought to dive into that at some point and study that out. But it is a day of remembrance. And the reason that I want you to highlight that word remembrance, it's not the observance of some religious ceremony. It is a day of remembrance. On this day, and again, go back and read Exodus to get all the details, but I'm going to hit some highlights that point to how it applies to us. A special lamb is killed, and then its blood is applied to the doorpost of their house, and then that very same lamb is used to provide a meal for the entire family. And then in this meal, the four promises of God, which are literally the foundation of Nola Church, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, are recalled and then applied to every member of the family as remembrance, not as ceremony. And as a member of NOLA Church, but also as a believer, and in a broader sense as a believer, you need to be very, very, very familiar with Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, because these are God's promises that are the foundation for what we strive for every day of our lives, which is salvation. It's not just an Old Testament promise. It's not a collection of things that God said in ancient times. It is literally the foundation of what we are celebrating tonight in our relationship with God. So we see that they are remembering what God did in the book of Exodus. They're remembering these four promises that God gave them. And it's very important that they observe this. And he says, I don't want you to just haphazardly do this. I want you to do this on this day, in this month, at this time. So why is that important? So did a, did a deep dive on this. I'm going to unpack this for you so it will make sense. The, before we look at the number 14, I want to look at that first month. We think of the first month as January. That's not the first month 
in the biblical Jewish calendar. The first month in the biblical Jewish calendar is the month of Nishan. Nishan literally means their flight. This is the first month of the Jewish calendar and the Jewish calendar begins on the night that they left Egypt. Notice I didn't say the day. They did not leave in the morning, they left at night. Why do you think that's important? It's very, very important and you can see it connecting all the way back to the very first few verses in the book of Genesis. When God began to create, he creates light, he separates light from darkness and the evening and the morning were the first day. The day does not begin in the morning for God, it begins in the evening. And we see this pattern repeating constantly. Isn't it interesting that our day begins in the morning? We're in constant contrary position to God from the beginning of our life. It's just constantly pointing to things. So you're going to see a lot of symbolism here. Don't Bible nerd out too much. Don't, don't start getting superstitious. It, it all means stuff and it all connects, but just stay with me here. All right, so the month of Nishan, which means their flight. It's the first month of the Hebrew calendar and it literally falls about mid-March and ends about mid-April on our calendar. And it is uh, generally observed. It can be observed on any day of the week except for Thursday, but it's generally observed on a Wednesday or a Friday. It can be observed on any day except for Thursday, but it's generally observed on a Wednesday or a Friday before the actual Passover Sabbath, which is something we're going to get into here in just a second. And it just really depends on how the calendar falls that particular year. As you know, days fall on different days every year. And all of this, like God gave them this time. I want it, not saying I want it on a Wednesday or I want it on a Friday. I want it on the 14th day of the first month. And then I want you to do this at twilight. And this is all very, very important. Something that I, I want you to take here, if you're taking notes, I want you to kind of put this in your brain somehow or other. Rescue is the end of what was preparing for the new which is. Rescue is the end of what was preparing for the new which is. We see this in the Old Testament when God rescues the people out of Egypt and he takes them into the wilderness for 40 years, preparing them to go into the promised land. They were no longer to think about, they were no longer to look back, they were no longer to desire to return to Egypt. In fact, every time they did, they got like all tangled and he had to work some things out with them. That's the whole reason that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years is they kept looking backwards. This points even to our lives. When we enter into a relationship with God, we literally need to say goodbye to everything in our past. We don't need to carry anything from our past into our present. Our past is, go, is gone. Behold, the old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new is what the apostle says. We need to live in the new and not live in the yesterday. It's human nature to live in the yesterday. It's human nature to celebrate the things from the past. But if we want to live in the new that God has for us, we need to start embracing the new that he has and start living in that space because that's where real life begins to take on meaning. So what we begin to see here is that Passover 
not only indicates like leaving quickly, this, this flight away from slavery and this flight away from bondage, it also indicates a new beginning for God's people. Everything up to that point, especially for the previous 430 years, was slavery. But the moment they leave Egypt, especially the moment they cross the Red Sea, it's brand new. They're literally having to learn how to do everything. It is a brand new life. Think about when you first came to Christ. Did you suddenly know everything? Absolutely not. You, you needed to learn some things. If you're anything like most of us, you had to learn some of the things more than one time. You had to learn them a few times. And like about the time you think you haven't learned, you find out, nope, you didn't learn that right. You got to learn it again because it's a time of brand new. It's new life. And it's very similar to how our life as a baby, like when you're born, you can't walk. You have to build up to that. When you're born, you can't go eat a porterhouse steak. I mean, you could try. It's going to kill you. Like you have to gradually grow into things. There's this notion in Christianity that, oh, I got saved. I'm ready for everything. No, you're not. Like I did this. Now I'm ready to take on. It's like, have you ever seen that movie, Eddie the Eagle? Like he, he you should totally watch the movie. It's a fantastic movie. He, he, does a, uh, he does a major downhill ski jump on a relatively small hill and finally sticks the landing. After many attempts, he finally sticks the landing. And he turns around and he goes, I think I'm ready for that bigger one. No, we're, we're not ready for the bigger one just because we accomplished that thing. It is a process of growth. It's a relationship that everything is being built on. Passover, we'll get to questions here in just a second. Hang on to it, remember it, like write it down so you don't forget it. But Passover is an indication of something brand new. You're not ready for everything the moment that you get rescued, but you're ready to start learning how to walk into a new life. Does, does that make sense? So let's dig into this a little bit more. Passover is not a religious observance. It is a spiritual remembrance of what God had done for them. And I'm, I'm really belaboring this point because I want to separate from the idea that Passover is religious, therefore communion is religious. Most of us live in a very liturgically influenced society. And liturgical influence says that communion is spiritual in and of itself. It is not. It is a remembrance. And that's extremely vitally important because when you make it spiritual, you're leaning into idolatry because every element becomes something that you worship. So you, you got to keep it in what it was. It is a remembrance. It is not a religious observance. Okay, let's look at the number 14. I'm not even going to attempt to, to pronounce that in Hebrew, but it basically means four tens, exactly like our number 14 does. But the number 14 has extremely deep significance and deep meaning in Hebrew culture. And you see a foreshadowing of what you're going to understand later on right here in God saying, I want you to observe this on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. We see why the first month, it means fleeing quickly. We see why twilight, because they left Egypt at twilight, but why 14? Anyone ever read the first chapter of Matthew? You see the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. 
There, there's a couple of the gospels that give a genealogy. Actually, there's three of them that give a genealogy. But Matthew's is different. Matthew literally connects Jesus to every major patriarch of the Hebrew culture. And he does it by highlighting. And there are 14 generations between each one of the patriarchs. Why is he doing this? The reason is because there is a philosophy in Hebrew culture called gematria. Now, gematria is not superstition. Gematria is not special code. Like there's some great movies calling it special code, but it's not special code. It is simply a way for them to speak about something without using all the letters. If you do a direct transliteration from Hebrew into English, you're going to learn that Hebrew has no vowels. So phrases can mean entire paragraphs. Words can mean vastly different things. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but in studying this, you learn different things. So one of the things that they would do to help them remember things is they would use this way of numbering their characters to add value and bring meaning to phrases. So if you were to take the, the gematric value of the name David, direct transliteration would be DVD because it has no vowels. If you take the letters of David's name in Hebrew and you add them up with their gematric value, it equals 14. So the number 14 in Hebrew culture always connects back to the Davidic line. Think Davidic with a capital D and think line with a capital L. What am I talking about? The Davidic line points directly to Messiah. The reason that Matthew highlights Jesus's genealogy with 14 generations is he is directly connecting for every one of his readers. Jesus is in the Davidic line. In fact, he is the Davidic line. So he's highlighting this. Obviously, David had not been born in Leviticus 23. David wasn't even a remote thought at this time. But we see a spiritual foreshadowing that is pointing to something, that is connecting to something that is still going to be reality centuries and centuries and centuries later. You see Jesus being clearly revealed even in the outlay of the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're going to do this on the 14th day because it's pointing to my redemption. Here is proof positive that the Passover feast and the observance and the remembrance of Passover is directly tied to redemption. I don't know about y'all, but that's just flipping cool to me. Like nothing is accidental. It's all in there. And we see this. It's also foreshadowing an eternal rescue provided by God. It's not a cultural ritual. It's an eternal promise. Don't let anyone try to get you to believe that the ritual is where the power is. The ritual has no power like any other ritual. It's all about when you understand what the Passover truly is. And no, you don't have to become a Messianic Jew to appreciate Passover. And no, you don't have to go sacrifice a lamb and eat the whole thing and it's roasting to observe communion the right way. No, you don't have to do any of that. That's all ritual and ceremony. God's not asking us to convert to Judaism. But what we need to do is read the Old Testament and see the type and shadow that's pointing to Jesus and then say, okay, that's where I can see redemptive value for my own life. Does, does that make sense? We'll get into some questions in a second because I know that was really deep. But here's what I want to do now. I want to connect Passover directly with Jesus. So, so you're not getting lost in what I already have in my head. I want you to be right there with me. The Hebrew calendar begins 
a day at sunset, not in the morning, begins at sunset. So the timeline begins at evening, not morning. You have to remember this. This is one of the areas where deconstructionists, which is a very popular trend right now, deconstructionists will attack the trial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because they don't understand that the calendar begins at sunset, not at daybreak. Okay, so let's dig into this. Hebrew calendar begins a day at sunset. Nishan 14, April 14th, for lack of a better term. Nishan 14 began on a Wednesday evening and it goes all the way through Thursday afternoon. Does that make sense? That is the calendar day, not Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening. And that was the day that Passover was observed in the year that Jesus was crucified. So don't think that Jesus observed the Last Supper with the disciples on Thursday because you never observe Passover on Thursday. Every other day of the week is possible, but not Thursday. And I'm not telling you the reason why I want you to go do the dig. Avoid Wikipedia, just throwing that out there. Go do the dig. It's very, it's relatively easy to find, but it's a, just a really cool journey. Go, go do that study and then post it in the comments and we can all grow together. It's just a really cool thing. So Wednesday is the day that Passover was to be observed in the year that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was observing his last supper on the Wednesday evening of Passover. Now, this is the day that 99.99% of all the Hebrew citizens would have observed Passover. They would have done it on Wednesday evening. The reason it was because the Passover Sabbath was the day that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed in the temple. That was the more ceremonial thing, but the relational familial observance of Passover would have happened Wednesday evening. That's why Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples observing Passover. He wasn't doing it out of order. He was doing it in line with what everybody else in the day was doing. He is arrested, he's tried, he's beaten, and he's crucified before Thursday evening, which would have been Nishan, the end of Nishan 14, going into Nishan 15. And this is the day that the Passover lamb was slain at the temple. So the day that the priests would go to the temple, kill the Passover lamb, this is the day that Jesus was tried, he was beaten, and he was crucified. While the Passover lamb is being sacrificed at the temple, the lamb of God is being sacrificed on the cross. Maybe not at the exact same moment, but in the same time period on the same day on the calendar year. Then Jesus is buried on Thursday evening, Nishan 15, which is the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. You start to see the connections. Not one bit of this is accidental. And I'm, I'm fairly certain the cynicism that rests in all of us is like, you're just reading into the story. I, actually, I'm not. This is all very clear when you look at the biblical timeline and you begin to do the deep dive. It, 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 you're not like 10 layers down. You start to see the connections when you actually study the Bible, not just on the surface. And this is why it's very important to learn how to do this because it takes on a whole lot more meaning because you start to understand Jesus went through everything that he went through very, very strategically and very, very intentionally in the exact same way that God said, do this on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. Why? 
Number one, it connects with so much that I'm doing in the Old Testament, but it's preparing and foreshadowing for what I'm going to do when I robe myself in flesh and take care of all of this for you eternally. None of it is accidental. Every bit of it is intentional. All right. So let's go on to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we will get into some questions. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 6 to 8. He says, on, and on the 15th day of the same month, literally the very next day, is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Notice this, seven days, remember what we learned last week, the number six points to the action and the work of men. The number seven points to the action and the work of God. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, which would be the 15th of Nishan, on the first day, you shall have a holy convocation, a sacred assembly. You're starting off together. Notice how he is literally blowing the world up of individualism and isolationism. We do this together. We don't do this separate. It's not a personal relationship with God. It's very communal. It's very familial. It is very much an us thing. We're doing this with each other for God. And you shall notice this. You shall do no customary work on this. Okay, whatever you do the rest of your week, do it. But not during this time. This is, remember, who, who do the feasts belong to? God. Who are the feasts for? God. They're for us to commemorate and remember, but they are for God. Don't do your thing on, on the day of my feast. It's a very, very intentional Mandate, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. Remember, seven. And the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. Again, sacred assembly. And you shall do no customary work on it. So Passover is here. And then the next day begins seven days of observing the feast of unleavened bread. And what this feast is there for, it's to commemorate the journey out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. It's the beginning of this new life. It's the beginning of leaving Egypt. Now, if you don't know this, this is something that you need to have in your understanding. In the Bible, Egypt is always symbolically a type and shadow of life outside of God. It represents sin. That does not mean Egyptian people that you know in the world today are evil. There are people that believe that, but that's not true. In the Bible, everybody say, in the Bible, Egypt points to life outside of God and a life of sin. So God is rescuing them out of a life of sin, out of the life of separation from him, and he's pulling them into a promise that is from him, for him, and by him that he is giving to them. Feast of Unleavened Bread represents the journey out of what was into what is. It starts at Passover and then it, it begins on the first seven days of their journey. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the feast. This feast is the fulfillment of God's promise of rescue and deliverance. He gets them out of Egypt and then he gets Egypt out of them. And we see two bodies of water. If you're reading through Exodus, you see two baptisms or two elements of baptism represented. The Red Sea and the bitter waters at Mara represents repentance and represents water baptism. So everything is pointing and it's all aligning with God's plan of salvation 
and you're seeing it all begin to play out. And this feast is marked by an offering of new grain, which is the very first harvest. And this is a feast of this new grain and they're giving it to God. They're, they're to bring the new grain. It's actually even pre-harvest. When it first begins to bud, they take that and they collect it and they bring it to God. Anybody know what the first is pointing to? It's pointing to tithe. The Feast of First Fruits ties directly into this. Don't let anyone tell you that tithe no longer applies. Yes, it does. Because every bit of this applies and none of it is disconnected. This literally points to the tithe offering, which is the first harvest in the promised land. He's preparing them for the very first thing that you have an increase. It actually belongs to me. And if you bring it to me and return it to me, I'll be a part of everything else that I entrust to you. If you want my involvement in all this, bring me the first. I mean, that's not fair. No, that's actually very, very beneficial for everyone who is involved. So this feast begins and ends with a sacred assembly. And these days are set apart for God. And like, go back in your mind to all the questions that we had last week where every one of us were trying to rationalize, well, can I do this on the Sabbath? Or how about I do this? And that's human nature. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming at any of us except for all of us, myself included, because that's what we all do. Can I do this on the day that I set aside for him? The answer is no. Well, that's very religious. Actually, it's not. It's very relational. He's saying, I want this day. You have all these other days for your common stuff. Give me this day and watch what I can do in all those days with what you give me here. Does that make sense? It, these are set apart for God. No customary work was to be done. And this involved daily offerings to God. This feast is a week of sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. So, man, alive, they're going to think no one is in the room. Everybody say sanctification. sanctification. All right, cool. What is sanctification? Sanctification literally means to be set apart for and to God. Another word for that is holy. Wait, I thought holiness meant flawlessness. Nope. Something that is holy can have many flaws. But when it is set apart for and to God... He takes care of the flaws with his holiness because his holiness is pure and without blemish. We offer him the sacrifice of our best. Our best is always flawed and compared to his. We just bring it to him and it is a time of sanctification. And they were to eat unleavened bread for seven days. So what is unleavened bread? It's like pita bread, but like legit pita bread. Not the good pita bread that like rises up when you cook it. Like if you go to Biblos, and they bring that out of that little brick oven. If you haven't, you should totally go. They bring those big pita loaves. Or if you go to Shia down on Magazine Street, that Israeli restaurant, which is fantastic. That's not the kind of pita bread we're talking about because that has leaven in it. I'm talking about the kind that when you bring it out of the oven, it's just like flat. Because the leaven represents sin. He wants them to eat this with no sin. And the other reason is because remember, they had to leave quickly. They had to get out of Egypt quick. They didn't have time to let the, the yeast make the bread rise. Make the dough, roll it out, put it in the oven, bake it, let's go. Every bit of it represents getting the removal of the leaven. And this points directly to our action of repentance, which is a change of mind resulting in a change of action. In other words, separation from anything 
that isn't for God. And those of you that were in Genesis class last night, we, we talked about living in separation. By the way, if you haven't been to Genesis class, let me go ahead and throw a commercial in there. It's fantastic. You'll enjoy it. You'll learn a lot. It's not just for people that you think it's for. It's for everybody, myself included. But we learned about living in separation. God wants us to literally separate everything out of our life that doesn't connect us with him. If it doesn't connect us with him, does it need to go? Yes, absolutely. Because anything that gets between us and God becomes an idol in our life and blocks us from God. So let me connect this feast with Jesus and then we'll close this out. This feast connects with Jesus in this way. Jesus is actually buried on the first day of this feast on that Thursday evening. In Luke's gospel, he calls it the day of preparation. And a lot of people think he's talking about the day of preparation for Sabbath or for Passover, but he already ate the Passover. No, that's not what he's talking about. They are literally preparing for the Passover Sabbath, which was going to be that Saturday. They're preparing for the day of holy convocation. It is a day of preparation, which is why they said, we've got to get him off the cross and get him into the tomb because after it gets too late, we can't do that because we're not allowed to do any work. So Pilate, we need to get his body now. We, we're on a clock here. It, I'm not trying to belittle what happened, but that's literally how they approached him. Like, hey, Pilate, can we get the body? Let's go. Because they had to align with this. And this is how we know. This is where we can kind of backtrack the timeline to see what happened. And then Jesus resurrects on the third day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the Sunday, which was also the first day of the week, indicating that he is the first of the Sabbath. All right, here's the application, and then we're done. First, Jesus is the Lamb of God. So we're making an application to Passover. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If there's anyone who's confused about who Jesus is, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And the book of Luke says he was slain before the foundation of the world. And he is forever in that position just literally creating the separation of us from our sin, providing the, the salvation from sin and all of that stuff. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is both our Passover lamb and our bread of life. And when we observe communion, we're remembering his sacrifice, not celebrating a religious ritual. I know I've already touched on this, but let me say it one more time again, because I've got to literally flush this liturgical idolatry out of our minds and out of our hearts. There is nothing holy about the sacraments of communion. It is stale crackers. It is subpar grape juice. That's literally all it is. It is not what you're eating. It's what you're remembering when you eat it. And if we really, 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 truly want to be technical, the New Testament church that is birthed in the book of Acts, every time they sat down to eat a meal, they called it communion because they would remember what Jesus did in sacrificing his life and resurrecting to give us power and victory over sin. That's where the whole tradition and the practice of praying before you eat comes from. So when we observe communion on a Sunday, like once a quarter or two or three times a year, we're not even doing it the way the New Testament church did. We're actually following a religious principle. We, we literally need to disconnect ourselves from that. 
We need to get the remembrance of what Jesus did, who he is and what he did. We need to put that more into every aspect of our life instead of looking for superstitions and little trinkets and talismans to give us some sort of special power. No, it doesn't. Drinking communion wine and eating communion bread doesn't heal your body, but remembering who your healer is will usher you into healing. There's no magic power in this because it's not mystical. It's very spiritual and it's the remembrance. In the same way that being buried in water and baptism doesn't truly cleanse you from anything according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. What it does is wash your spirit in the blood of Jesus and close you in his identity. It's a very spiritual thing even though there is a physical example. Does, does that make sense? So we see this application with Jesus here. Next application, Jesus is the one who rescues us from our slavery to sin. Revelation 1, the end of verse 5, Jesus who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We see the application of the blood on the doorpost of our house. When we observe communion, when we pray, when we repent, when we are buried in water baptism, every bit of it points back to Passover and Jesus fulfills Passover in his life. And then also the final application is that Jesus is the first. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to, to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He says, I am the resurrection and life. Jesus is the first. He is the beginning there. And then look at Colossians 1, 15 to 18. This is how Paul said it. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, which is the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Who is Jesus to you? I don't know about you, but Jesus is the beginning and the ending of everything in my life. I want him to be greater in every aspect of my life. That's why when we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see that he is the first. He is the beginning of that harvest. And I can live a life of repentance because I'm going to intentionally separate myself from anything that would put anything else before him. We see that he is offered as the final sacrifice for our sins and he was buried to cover our sins and then he resurrected to give us victory and to conquer our sins. So here we see the application of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're going to close this out with some questions. I hope you learned some stuff. Amen, amen.